And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rodrigue, and with me, as always, my fabulous co-host, Rich Hammond. Rich, how we doing? Jordan, we are doing well, and I know we have a special guest today on our special episode of 11 Personnel. But before we get there, congratulations to Jordan Rodrigue. Just announced today, Tuesday, the winner of the first ever Therese A. Paler Emerging Writer Award, as awarded by the Pro Football Writers of America. We mentioned it last week that you were a finalist, along with uh, some other very deserving, very talented uh, people. And uh, congratulations, Jordan. That's an award given uh, to uh, the writer, uh, exemplifies the qualities of Therese Paler, somebody we we knew and, and really loved. He passed away in, in February of this year. Uh, but just somebody who was uh, just the ultimate professional and uh, just shown through in, in his work in all aspects of it and just a wonderful person in the way he approached his job. And I uh, can't think of a more deserving person to be honored with this award for the first time. So congratulations, Jordan. Thanks, Rich. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm, I get embarrassed easily when you bring stuff like this up. But uh, in terms of honoring Therese, um, I encourage everybody to go donate to his scholarship fund at Howard University. Um, you can donate any amount of your choice and designate the uh, amount to Therese A. Paler in memory of Therese A. Paler um, to his scholarship in the sort of designation box that it will present to you. Because one of the many things I admired about Therese was his mentorship toward the young generation of sports writers and journalists. And um, my thoughts are always with his loved ones. And we all miss him very much. It's a huge honor. Um, and I think this is an interesting segue because I got surprised with the information on Monday morning by a video call uh, upon which our our, our guest here, uh, Ram CEO Kevin Demoff, uh, was on the call and hit his head on an airplane airplane <laughs> overhang. Kevin, how are you? First of all, thanks for joining us. And are you in a seated position where you will not be in danger of uh, bumping your head on anything else? Absolutely, Jordan Rich. How are we doing? Yay! He gets the tagline. <laughs> oh, this is a wonderful. We're going to chop that up and tweet it out. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's your teaser, it. right? Uh, no, it. I was great to, to join the, the call yesterday. When I was on the call, I was thinking back to Jordan Rich and my first encounter and how far we've come <laughs> from, you know, Jordan having to get the Marriott to un, you know, <laughs> unnail her bed from the wall because she can't find her phone to emerging writer of the year. I mean, <laughs> shit, I mean, you know, most people will say the pandemic, you know, has not been kind to them. But I mean, for Jordan, wow. Look at those 16 months. I don't yeah. think we've told the story. Can I, think, I tell the I story think you real need quick? Some context, because I think you need to provide context to the, the unnailing. I think you need to provide context to the sentence. Uh, she had to get maintenance to unnail her bed from the wall. So please <laughs> the do tell yeah. the story. <laughs> yeah, the podcast is already off the rails, isn't it? 
Yeah, we. Uh, I can't believe it was. It's already been more than a year ago. The combine of of twenty twenty, and we knew. Well, we were still trying to recruit Jordan. Actually, we didn't know whether or not we were going to uh, be able to bring her out from Carolina, but uh, found some a bit of downtime. Kevin graciously agreed to to meet Jordan and I for coffee at a certain time, and time passed and passed and passed, and Jordan still wasn't there, and. Kevin and I are kind of running out of things to talk about, you know, we're talking about the weather and whatever. And, and finally Jordan, uh, is, is, uh, hastily comes in in a uh, snowstorm sprinted (laughs) in heels in a snowstorm, by the way. Do you want to finish the story, Jordan? Well, what had happened was, uh, so I was charging my phone in the little bedside outlet at this hotel and I, I guess I fell asleep with it next to me or something. I must have rolled over or something in my sleep. And the phone yanked out of the wall and fell behind the, the bed, um, which was nailed by the headboard to the wall. And it fell behind the headboard section um, between the mattress and the, and the headboard onto the floor. So I could not get to it. It had died. So I was furiously uh, DMing on Twitter Rich Hammond, who I also had only just met for the first time in person um, as I was trying to see whether or not I was going to take this job. And the COO of the Los Angeles Rams is sitting with Rich in a Starbucks waiting for me. And I'm like on the phone with maintenance and panicking. So I sprint I don't. I barely had any clue where I was going because I, like many millennials, use my phone as a map. So I sprint down the street to try to like hope it's the right Starbucks, and I show up just a complete mess, out of breath, shake Kevin's hand for the first time, and am dead inside. Like just thinking, <laughs> I can't take this job now because <laughs> I've made such an ass of myself. And here we are. And here, here we, we are. are. And you know, sixteen months line. later, yeah. emerging writer of the year. So. So to all you aspiring journalists, lose your phone behind a headboard. Great things yeah. will happen in your career. <laughs> Don't. T- yeah. Note, note to young journalists, always have a backup charging plan. That's what I would say. And and also try to find good people to work with. And um, that's what I've found certainly in my move here to Los Angeles. And Kevin and Les Snead and Sean McVeigh and, and everybody has been really welcoming, um, you know, even even on the days where they want to cuss me out a little bit, everyone's been really, really welcoming um, and just fantastic to work with. So this, you know, Artist Twyman and PR and his entire staff, it's it's it. I, you don't grow as a writer without people who encourage you uh, for your ideas. So um, now that we've got the corny stuff out of the way and we've told one of my most humiliating moments of all time, um, very happy we've opened the podcast. Like you, knock, you get honored, you got to knock it down a peg, right? I know, I know. Now I'm, I've been sinking into my chair as we've been talking. I'm actually like three or four inches shorter now. Um, we we want to take you all the way back, Kevin. We, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to be on here today with us. Um, and I think we were curious, uh, first of all, um, just about the magnitude of, of this project of SoFi Stadium. And Rich and I were discussing this uh, earlier offline, just, just the enormity and then sort of that pit that settles into your stomach maybe when you realize you, you, you aren't going to be able to open it for its first year. It will be sitting virtually empty, have games and experiences, things like that. But what was that like for you? You know, I, if you actually go back in time, that pit wasn't that large. I mean, I, if you actually place yourself in the context of 2020, not having fans in a stadium, not opening the way you want it, seemed pretty minor. And still is. 
Right. I mean, I, I think the great thing about SoFi Stadium and, and you know, Jordan, you got to experience it on Thursday. This was built for generations for Los Angeles. And whether it opened in 2020 or 2021, sure, it's not what we drew up, but so many people had 2020 ruined graduations, birthdays, weddings, celebrations. And that's before you even get into, you know, the tragedies of loss of life that you to say, okay, you couldn't open it the way you wanted. Sure. Um, I'm just grateful it got completed. Uh, that it's beautiful that we were able to push through and play our games there last year. And, you know, it's a, this is truly a dream deferred for a year. And you started to get that feeling. And, and in some ways, you know, I never believe there's silver linings to the pandemic too much hurt to too many people around the world to say they're silver linings. But the buildup to get back to SoFi Stadium and see just that excitement from fans and the return to live events, what it will be in 2021 will be magical. And it'll be everything we expected in 2020. That, you know, that first game with fans is never going to go away. And that will be, you know, this Sunday, September 12th against the Chicago Bears instead of last year against the Dallas Cowboys. But I, I can't wait until until September and we got a taste of that last Thursday. I mean, so it was hard, certainly, but within the context of the world, you know, not a thought. Yeah. What was that like, Kevin? You, you did wait for so long. And I know you've had people in for tours and things like that. People have been able to see their seats. But uh, to get thousands of people in there for, for that practice, uh, what did you, did you take a moment to, to look around at all and just kind of let that sink in? And, and also, what's next? Uh, for the, for that area, I know the the performance uh, center is being built up too. Know that's going to open pretty soon. Uh, what what what's next for that entire kind of Hollywood Park complex? Is there a phase B or uh, what what's what should people expect like over the next year or so? Yeah, I think to answer your second part first. So you know, if you look at the Hollywood Park, you know, people can focus on SoFi Stadium, which is amazing, but truly Hollywood Park is going to be transformational uh, for all of Los Angeles. And, and when Stan decided to you know, build an NFL stadium in Los Angeles wasn't just about, okay, we're going to build an NFL stadium. It's how do we build, you know, a project in Inglewood, return it to the city of champion status. And so you have 300 acres. The stadium sits at the heart. We have a performance venue, which is tucked underneath the same roof, which is going to open up uh, this summer. Just yesterday, we announced a deal with Live Nation to be the programmer of that 6,000-seat music venue, which will also host esports. And it will host NFL honors next year for the Super Bowl uh, ahead of that um, NFL media building, which you see right next to SoFi Stadium will open this summer. Um, so, you know, Sunday, September 12th, Rich Eisen and crew will do their, you know, studio show from across the street at SoFi Stadium. It's open to fans. It's got a, you know, kind of a Today Show, 30 Rock, you know, ABC, Good Morning America. Fans can watch outside. Um, so that building is essentially done uh, and ready. You can see apartments. There are 500 apartments that are being built right now when you drive along Prairie, those will come online later this fall, early, you know, probably Q1 of 2022. You're also going to see the retail district, which is movie theaters and restaurants and, and gyms, assuming gyms still exist in 2022. Uh, all of that's starting to be built up at the hard corner of uh, Century and Prairie, you know, right there. So that's really the next phase of what you're going to see at Hollywood Park. Ultimately, we'll add a 300-room hotel uh, more homes, condos, more retail. We're talking about starting another office building. So we really have the right to go to 8 million square feet of development and ultimately over decades to 15 million square feet, which is larger than Century City in here in LA in terms of square footage. So a massive project that we're just starting to, to scratch the surface on. 
Well, in terms of that enormity of that project, what is the emphasis internally and and what sort of um, staffing are you guys uh, going to be doing? And I know Molly Higgins does a great job of this in, in the community department um, to make sure that this is an authentic space in a community that has so much history in Inglewood and to make sure that you guys are building in an authentic way that doesn't disrupt um, the culture that's already existent in the community. Yeah, I mean, I think the great part is, you know, if you look at, and it starts with the construction process, which had over 12,000 people employed on the work site at some point in the five years, you know, really 2016 to 2020, that the stadium was being built. Uh, about a third of those um, were people who worked locally in the Inglewood and surrounding zip codes. And then, you know, I think we had something like 1,200 first-time workers on the job who are from Inglewood who are being trained as apprentices, part of that program, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in women minority-owned businesses went into went into that project. You know, the special stories, and you've seen some of these covered, uh, we worked with a group called Second Call and the Anti-Recidivism Coalition to take formerly incarcerated workers, put them on the project. I've uh, become friends with a few mentors, you know, did a mentorship session with a few, you know, really is that leadership aspect and great, you know, they're great organizations. Um, Skip Townsend runs Second Call, you know, Scott Bodnick and the Anti-Racism Coalition have loved getting a chance to, to chat with that. And you're carrying that through as you get into the game day hiring, 6,000, 7,000 workers on game day site. And ultimately, you hope that the jobs that are created on this project, you know, aren't just temporary game day jobs, but they're stadium jobs, they're security jobs, they're jobs in the retail district. And really, that those are locally owned businesses. And there's a whole focus within the retail district about getting businesses that are in Inglewood owned and operated to come in there and truly exist because we built the stadium, not just taking, you know, chains and multinational conglomerates in, but truly, you know, some of those, you know, small businesses and, you know, it, it there are amazing stories that come out of it. Uh, you know, last Thursday night, we were talking about uh, the excitement around the stadium, but after that I left and went right next door to Sweet Red Peach, which is a bakery. I don't know if you've been there um, locally on, and picked up my son's graduation cake because it's the only place we get cakes from. Yeah, but that's a relationship that we've built up. They're a certified Rams house now uh, with Carolyn, the owner, that's only come about because of the stadium being there. And, you know, so I look at all of those little relationships that, that we've built up over time. And you hope that we're additive to the community, not just a replacement. And that's a living thing. It's not just, you know, the stadium's open. Here is our big, exciting, all of our ventures that we want to do you hope that that sort of uh, living relationship sustains uh, for years to come, I'm sure. Yeah. And if you talk about, you know, the disappointment in not being there in 2020, you felt it for the small businesses around and, you know, the local owners around the stadium, right? They, you know, they had been there excited about the stadium opening, excited about getting hundreds of thousands of people in and around the neighborhood. And that's deferred. So when they're at their lowest point in the pandemic, you want to bring them that business. That's going to be really interesting. I think for us, as we go through, this year and beyond, just how much business our customers, our fans, those who come to concerts can generate for those groups and really to see, you know, that prairie and century corridor thrive and then where it goes beyond that. And ultimately, long term, you know, when the Clippers Arena comes in place in 2024, you know, the further development of the metro and the airport. You know, if you look at, you know, our investment, there's probably $20 billion over the next few decades when you look at the totality of the project. You look at what's going on at LAX, you know, 20 and 25 billion. That means the front door of Los Angeles, you know, that LAX to, to SoFi corridor, Hollywood Park corridor, it's going to get 40 to $50 billion 
of investment. You know, when you think about long-term by the Olympics in 2028, that's going to change the, how people arrive and experience Los Angeles in a meaningful way. And hopefully will allow the community to really continue to build up and thrive. Yeah, Kevin, you mentioned uh, the Clippers there. Are, are you guys, I know you're not partners in any way, but I mean, do you, do you communicate with Steve Ballmer at all just about, you know, how that project is going to look and how it might tie into any of the things that you're doing just simply because of the proximity uh, of the, of the two uh, stadiums? I was really telling him more about how to shift Kawhi on defense to help stop the jazz. <laughs> you know, so that's what our latest exchange was. was about, I mean, look, I think the great part is, you know, Stan's blueprint of going in and, you know, building a sports and entertainment destination in, in Inglewood. It's great to have them be a part of that and be across the street. And they're going to utilize a lot of the, the retail facilities. And I would say the Hollywood park infrastructure, not so much a partnership with us, but you know, when people come for a Clippers game, you know, they're going to eat and shop and dine and stay with us. And, you know, that element will be you know important, but they have their own you know goals. You know, we interact with them to some degree, but I know they, they can't wait to get their arena going. We're thrilled to have them next door. We're thrilled, you know, to have them at the forum. I mean, there are neighbors now on either side, you know, of SoFi Stadium. And it's going to be important for us to have a, a great relationship. So the fan experience for, you know, for the Rams, for SoFi Stadium, for Hollywood Park, and for the Clippers is the best it can be. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Shifting uh, back to that, what, September 12th, that's the, the opener. You know, today it, it was made public that the Bears are saying that Andy Dalton will be the starting quarterback for Chicago uh, instead of 
Justin Fields, um, and you guys already know who your guy is going to be. So um, that process, going back to first you guys kind of get through um, this unprecedented season with the pandemic. Um, Reggie Scott, I think, deserves a big shout out for and his staff for everything that they've done. They did to try to keep people safe. And I'm still blown away by those little foot pedals on the doors because whoever thought of that is a genius. I still can't figure them out. So yeah, you know, I don't I'm have just the, glad as of June 15th, I don't have to use the foot pedals anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it's, it was just the, the little details just were, were incredible um, that you guys placed all around your, your facilities to keep people safe. And then, so you guys get through that and then you make a major personnel change in the trade uh, with Detroit uh, shipping out Jared Goff and bringing in Matthew Stafford. Um, first and foremost, can you get into any of the granular bits of that trade itself? I would imagine you were glued to your phone texting back and forth with Sean McVay through that time, uh, obviously with him being in, in what was it, Cabo, uh, with Andrew Whitworth and Matthew Stafford, apparently hot vest- vacation destination, that hotel. So can you t- take us inside some of that and maybe even some of the emotional side parts of it, like what that feeling was realizing the magnitude of moving on from former first overall pick, someone who you guys had decided to invest in just a short time previously. Yeah. I, I first I told my wife, Jen, I'm like, I think we, we got to go to Cabo. Yeah. You guys have to find that hotel. You know, that Friday and Saturday, I'm like, you know, I feel like, you know, we need to be there and to go check it out on company dime and make sure everything goes smoothly. you know, with this and, you know, I'm sure we'll go back at, at some point, Rich knows when, you know, the legend of the Spago dinner, you know, with Stan and then the next year we took all, all the writers to Spago. So, you know, to Chileno Bay, you know, in Cabo, we all go <laughs> next, next January, February, hopefully after February 13th. You know, look, I, it was the, the strangest trade I've been a part of, you know, in terms of emotionally and, you know, in my career with, in the NFL, just in the sense of, that you are excited about the opportunity, but obviously it's gut-wrenching to, to have to move on to someone who's meant so much to, to our franchise um, and to, to the buildup of the Rams. And if you think about the Los Angeles Rams, synonymous with Jared Goff, he was the first draft, the number one pick, you know, our first move when we got back to, to Los Angeles, took us to division titles, to the Super Bowl. Um, you know, one of the faces of the franchise, you know, someone we invested in with and you hope that you would be with, you know, for a very long time. So I think getting over that, you know, really the stark nature of just that emotional connection and leaving aside the football, um, you know, what Jared's done in our community in Inglewood, when you talk about the, the giveaway, you know, stepping in last year, helping build a library and giving away backpacks with Wi-Fi with SoFi to help conquer the digital divide and, and everything he did from the wildfires in California strong and just an amazing, you know, leader for us on and off the field. And, you know, in sports, you never anticipate having to, you know, hit the turn signal and go a different direction. Uh, but, you know, I, I think you have to, you know, the hard part when you sit there and you know, you're trying to, you know, here's Sean and Les and the coaches and the scouts make a football decision. You have to separate the emotional part. Um, and I think that's hard. And I think in the aftermath of everything, people try to wrap those two up and they should be separate. I think we all would love to have Jared Goff, you know, the person here uh, in our building forever. Um, and we'll stay in touch. My, you know, my kids were on the floor crying that day. 
And, and so you realize the impact, you know, that's had, but, you know, ultimately you're trying to build the best football team you can. And, you know, if the organization believes, you know, Sean Les, that you can get an upgrade at the most important position in sports, you know, you're going to follow that path logically. And, and so I do think this is one where you have to take the emotion out of it. Um, and you a little bit have to take off your franchise leader hat um, and, and sit in the room and, and understand where your, your football group is coming from, knowing the investment that you've made, but that more importantly, that your goal is to, you know, to win titles, to be competitive. And we certainly were with Jared. I think that's the hard part. You know, most franchises don't do that. And I, you know, I understand the continual comparisons. And I was thinking about that. I don't know the last time two starting quarterbacks were traded for each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you think about everything is, you know, there's always going to be a comparison. They're always going to be linked just the same way Jared and Carson Wentz were always linked together and, you know, in their path. Um, so, and, and look, and then I don't think anybody expected the timetable, right. You know, when we first had the conversation about, you know, quarterbacks, you know, who might be available for trade at that point, and, you know, it was Deshaun Watson and, and Matthew Stafford and, and maybe Aaron Rodgers, you know, and Carson Wentz, you know, you figured, okay, maybe it's a mid-February thing. You know, maybe you get to the com, you know, not that there was going to be a combine. Maybe it's a before, you know, the season kind of thing. You never expected that you'd be doing it before the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't think anybody was emotionally prepared for that or, you know, really from a business perspective. I think all of that made it just that much harder. You know, you didn't get that that closure probably that you would have loved to have had. Um and, you know, hopefully someday we'll, we'll be able to get that in a different way and, you know, thrilled to have Matthew and his family here and what they mean to our team and our franchise and our community. Uh, but it, it is hard to pivot, you know, so quickly after a season. I think all of us always after a season, you want to decompress and, you know, take some time to step back and evaluate. And unfortunately, the circumstances of this one just didn't really let that happen. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, football, you're out there at practice, like all the time uh, you were out there at, at camp and everything. So at what point did you start to have this realization that, and I'm talking about professional relationships specifically between Sean McVay, Jared Goff, the, the expectations shifting or, or, you know, the, the production or certain things shifting. At what point did you start to have a sense that like, okay, this is something that he really is serious. Like he's going to address this, like this, this, this thing could really, um, you know, Sean and Les and yourself and scouts and everybody's in these meetings and you guys are, have come to an understanding, um, you know, this, the way that we're going right now in, in the minds of the football staff is not sustainable. Yeah. You know, look, I think those are better questions ultimately for, for Sean and Les, but here's the reality, right? I mean, you, you have, First two years, you know, we're number one in points scored. You know, you're having success, and it's because of the offense. You know, the defense was good, but certainly the offense was driving it. You go to the Super Bowl. You know, 2019 was a very difficult year across the board. I mean, coming off the Super Bowl, you know, you'd like to be think that you can be one of those teams that can handle, you know, the hangover better. But ultimately, it, it's hard emotionally, physically. It takes its toll. You know, we went through some changes on offense. You know, you lose Todd Gurley you know, after the 2019 season in 2020, you know, you kind of have this feeling you've got a defense that, you know, certainly is capable, hopefully of taking you pretty deep um, into the playoffs and, you know, and the offense, you know, just wasn't up to what it had been previously, you know, under our group. And I think, 
if you just say, hey, because you've handed out a big contract, because you've made a commitment, that you're not going to be honest with, you know, are we as efficient or are we doing what we need to be doing offensively just because, you know, conventional wisdom says you can't, you know, make a change that you're not doing your team justice. You're not doing your franchise justice. And so I really think if you were, you know, as you get to the, the postmortem, were we as good on offense as we can be, you know, that answer was no. Um, and I think that was evident in a lot of different reasons. The truth of the matter is that really doesn't matter unless there's an alternative in which you think you can get better. Mm. And, you know, this wasn't like, hey, we're just making this move and we're going to see what's available. You know, you made this move because you had, you know, truly a, an all-pro caliber quarterback who actually was available, right? And that, you know, some of the differences, even as you look at, you know, I look back at the conversations we had, you know, that week, you know, and you're talking about it, Sean Watson, obviously before all the, you know, the stories came out there, Aaron Rodgers, those players are still not available, right? Those teams are still not discussing trading them. So, you know, Matthew Stafford was available. Um, you did have the relationship with Brad Holmes in Detroit that, you know, allowed you to understand what was possible. And, you know, I think that was the game changer, right? It'd be fascinating if Matthew Stafford doesn't ask for a trade. Who knows what we're talking about right now? Um, world's full of sliding doors, you know, and, you know, I, we can all go through them in our careers and our life and in our jobs. Uh, I, I would say this is much more, and, and I know people will never want it to be, this was always more about Matthew Stafford than it was about Jared Goff. And that's hard for people to, to understand because you traded one for another. Right. And so therefore it has to be about both. But, you know, and, and I think Jordan, you know, this, like most people would sit there and say, Hey, you're 10 and six, uh, you won playoff game in Seattle, you know, you vanquished Seattle and Arizona from the playoffs. You know, you went to green Bay, you're part of the final four, you know, we're going to do a certain upgrade. Most people aren't trying to go from an A to an A plus, mm -hmm. you know, and give up significant capital investments to it. That's not this group's mindset. It's what I love about them, you know, but I also think you sat there and you looked at, you know, in the final four in the NFC, you had Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, and the Rams, right? And, and so you get to this point of, you know, if we weren't, if we were better offensively across the board, and that falls to all 11 players, um, you know, we had done a pretty good job of assembling a team that could compete with the league quarterbacks. And, and look, Jared Goff beat, you know, all those guys in time, right? beat Tom Brady, has beaten Tom Brady, has beaten Aaron Rodgers, beat Russell Wilson, beat Drew Brees. Um, where, you know, but as a team, you know, could you get better at that spot to go compete? You knew Tom Brady wasn't going anywhere. You knew Russell Wilson wasn't going, you know, anywhere. Obviously, Kyler Murray, you know, has emerged for Arizona. It's the one position you probably have to be really good at. And if you think there's an opportunity to improve, you can. And I don't think that's a knock on Jared. All quarterbacks have room to improve, especially – you know, younger quarterbacks, but for, I think where our team was offensively a veteran presence at that position from a leadership perspective, you know, from an offensive design, I think was additive, you know, in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Kevin, you mentioned that great phrase there, you know, going from an A to an A plus and it seems like over the last few years, that's kind of been your 
kind of approach to things across the board. I mean, you, you don't just build a new stadium, you build, you know, the most state of the art stadium in, in the world. Uh, you don't just re-sign a player, you sign Aaron Donald to the biggest contract in, in, you know, defensive history. You don't just go upgrade at cornerback. You go get Jalen Ramsey, who's the, the best cornerback out there. Um, and obviously this trade going to, to Matthew Stafford. I remember one thing you told me early on, you know, 2016 or so. Um, I, I think you were, you were quoting, uh, Stan Kroenke and saying like, you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, undersell Los Angeles. Um, and I, I'm wondering how much of that, first of all, can you explain kind of what that means and, and how much of that filters down to, to some of these decisions or, or, you know, even any of the things that you do, um, when, when you make big swings like that is, is that really kind of an organization wide philosophy? Absolutely. It starts at the top, right? From ownership. All organizations are reflective of, of their ownership. And I think you, you had it almost right. You know, Stanley says you can't undershoot Los Angeles. That's what it was. In, in stadium design and team building. And, you know, I, I think when you look at it, it's not a, I want to say it's a go big or go home philosophy. I think, you know, it's not, you know, for Jordan's generation, it's not YOLO, right? I mean, oh God. you know, it, uh, <laughs> let's not get carried away, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm, right? I'm supremely uncool. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think there's this belief that, you know, be aggressive. And if you see ways to differentiate your franchise, be aggressive. And that's, you know, I don't think that's just a Los Angeles mentality. I, I think, you know, you, you can see it, you know, Nuggets, Avalanche, Arsenal, you know, the, those, you know, the success that those teams have had recently, you know, this core of be aggressive where you think you can create opportunity. And, and I, I do believe this and, you know, when we came to you know Los Angeles stand, I want to build the greatest stadium, not just because of Los Angeles, because we have this opportunity, you know, and, and when you are the NFL in Los Angeles and, you know, one of the things, you know, that drives me each day, the NFL handed us, not handed us, certainly voted and respected, you know, with Stan's, you know, vision, you know, but Stan's vision for Los Angeles is what the NFL said, we're going to bet on all of you. And so for each of us, I always feel this enormous responsibility to the 32 owners and to the league to make sure the NFL in Los Angeles is successful. They handed us this opportunity. I'm not handed. Obviously, we <laughs> we earned it in different ways, but they entrusted us to, to do that. And I, I view it on us to deliver. Um, and there's no bigger pain in your stomach when you're sitting after 2016 and feeling like, hey, we didn't live up to our end of the bargain. Um, and, you know, now that being said, we have two, you know, two people who I love and Sean and Les who are among the least patient people on earth. Um, you know, we make a Sean, really Sean is, you know, and we, I don't buy know, that, <laughs> you know, I think that's where, you know, those of us, you know, Stan is eminently one of the most patient people I've ever been around. Uh, it's one of his greatest strengths. Um, and, and I think there's this balance of, Hey, Stan's viewpoint to Sean Les, I will back you. You know, if you believe this makes us better, let's go do it. Um, you know, and I was with him. We were at a league meeting in, you know, 2019 when we made the Jalen Ramsey trade, and he was so excited, you know, to go, you know, to go take that swing. You know, he he was excited to, you know, trade up for, you know, what for Jared Goff when we made, you know, that swing and that investment. When you paid Aaron Donald, I remember Stan and Aaron talking on the phone, you know kind of when the contract came through and, you know, both of them, you know, certainly Aaron in tears and, and Stan very emotional. Uh, I think you, you know, if you're Stan, you get in this to, to go win titles, to, to create amazing buildings and experiences. And, and that's the mandate. 
right? The mandate is to go go win a title. It's not to do it in you know great fashion or you know make big trades. It's go do what you think is best. And you know, and he has great faith in you know Sean and Les and Tony and Reggie and everybody who runs our building to say, I'm going to trust you if you believe this is what's best. And I think that gives them the freedom to then go maybe color outside the lines uh, a little bit. And look, and I, I think it's one of those things people come when there are big moves to be made, people always think we're going to be at the heart of them. They come to us with those trades. And I, I view it no different than, you know, an investment banker or a real estate person. You want to be the first person to see deals, right? You want the chance to be on everything, whether you actually execute them, whether you stay in on them, you want to make sure that you're always in, in the mix. And I think that that's what our reputation has done. And look, this is not just a, people can make splashes to make splashes. I think we've always done it in a meaningful way to acquire great players. And, you know, I think when you look at the players we've acquired, I truly believe, and this may be my philosophy, that the market for proven veterans um, is probably not as efficient as it should be from a trading mm -hmm. perspective. That, you know, we probably just don't value veteran talent enough. Um, and people may be scared off by trading picks and then paying contracts and, you know, how you manage the salary cap. There are always ways to try to invent and to be new. But if you're doing the same thing as everybody else, you're going to be 500. You're going to get the same results as everybody else. We're not arrogant enough to think that we can follow the same process everybody does to do it better. Right. I mean, I, I think that's where people get into trouble in the NFL and in all sports and in, in all walks of life. We're not special by any means if we follow the same blueprint. We have to come up with a blueprint that works for us, execute it to the best of our ability, and hope that maybe those incremental differences push us, you know, to where we want to go and where our fans want us to be. Does that ever get scary at all at times, though? To, to, I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast as a few times, like you guys kind of walk the high wire on on certain things, and and that's your your philosophy. I mean, for instance, you you end up giving Jared Goff that big contract. And it didn't work out. I mean, it, it, you know, it ends up working out in the end. You get Matthew Stafford, but it, the, signing the contract itself probably didn't end up the, the way that you wanted it to. Does that, when, when you've developed that reputation for yourself as, hey, we're going to put ourselves out there. We, we, we are going to take the big swings. Uh, are, are you comfortable in that seat all the time or do you, do you squirm sometimes? A little bit of both. Um, you know, I would say when we first started, you kind of get excited and you get, you know, deal excitement, you know, and you make trades and it, it's fun. There were, you know, I think the crazy part now is we've done enough times where, you know, certainly myself and Tony will say, okay, this is the last time we can do this and we're good for two years. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll reaccumulate picks and cap space and dollars. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I would say sometimes, you know, our building can be like the, the kids who want a puppy you know, and they'll always take care of it and walk it and feed it. And then, you know, Hey, it doesn't always turn, turn out that way. But, and, and I would say with Stafford, you know, when that trade came down, I was shaking my head and, you know, I'm like, we're just to the point now where I thought we had cleaned things up and, you know, Hey, we were set up and you know, Jalen's, this was the last year we were out of the Jalen picks and sure enough, you know, more first rounders, you know, out the board, but, what I love is, you know, Sean and Les, they don't just do it to make the splash, right? This is, they do it because they have sound football reasoning. And so when you sit and talk about a team building philosophy, it fits in, you know, with what they do. So I have greater comfort in their courage of conviction and their philosophy and their alignment than I do. If they weren't aligned, if they weren't believing in this, then, then I would be, you know, scared. Um, 
but I've also seen us be involved in enough things that we've walked away from that I know it's not just, you know, chasing the shiny object, that it truly is driven by the philosophy of how we build teams, what, you know, maybe our core competencies and strengths are, and, and then going from there. And look, there's, you certainly wind up making mistakes, right? The, when you take swings, sometimes you're going to strike out. Um, and, you know, you have to be comfortable with that as an organization. You have to be willing, you know, to have that be part of the narrative, right? If you're, you know, everybody in life, you, you can go to any company right now and they all say, we want to take risks. We want to encourage risk-taking. We want to fail fast. We've all been at the corporate retreats where people talk about that, <laughs> but yet then they punish risk-taking, right? And so, you know, that to me, you know, we've taken some risks, especially, you know, trades, contracts, some have worked, some haven't, but, you know, I think collectively, when you look at the last four years, you know, we're third or fourth in the NFL and total wins, three playoff appearances, you know, we've had success. And look, that's past success. The goals now are future success. What does next, you know, three or four look like? And, you know, it seems every year it's written that our window is closing, you know, that this isn't sustainable. It has been, you know, and the fact that we've been able to sustain it now does not necessarily mean we will sustain it you know, moving forward, that takes every year, but I think it takes an honest evaluation of your franchise each year, what you need, how do you get it? And what resources do you have to go chase things? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mike Sando of the athletic, you know, worked on a project this past off season, Love Mike. Um, talking about, you know, less than 40% of fifth year options for first rounders picks, you know, 20 through 32 are being picked up, right? You, so then you're talking about, you know, hey, if you trade a pick that's pick 25, you're trading a one in three shot to have someone for five years, right? Like that base rate would tell you, okay, you should trade out of that all the time. And I think one of the places, you know, the NFL has gotten a little screwy is, you know, as tanking has come to the NFL, left other sports and come to the NFL, it's become enamored with, hey, you've got to accumulate as many picks as possible. And that's true, right? Because two things can be true at the same time. The draft is a very inexact science. So getting more picks gives you a better chance to hit given the percentages that exist in the draft. That is absolutely true. And the more picks you have, the better chance you have of having success in the draft. The corollary is also true that in the converse, that because draft picks are risky investments, if you can get a surefire proven investment for that, but that's a good decision. Now there's economic differences as well. And those resources come into play. Um, but I think we've tipped too much in the league as we need draft picks to what's the point of a draft pick. It's to improve your team, you know, to give you cost control talent. I, I think, you know, Jordan has written about this last, last year. I think we had 16 players in our team who were second and third round picks between 2017 and 2020. And that includes, you know, our own home picks in Austin Corbett, you know, Jakai Polite, you know, players that we've acquired throughout time. Um, but, you know, that that's the nucleus of our team, right? When you look at those 16 cost-controlled rookie players who were, you know, as Les will call them, what is it called, the top 100 picks, you know? Yeah, right. You know, as, as he wants to rephrase them. So people get enamored by the big splash. They don't see that we've had the eighth most picks. They don't see the compensatory pick formula in trading those picks. And, you know, I've always said when we've made the big swings, you know, Matthew Stafford was the number one pick overall. Jared Goff was the number one pick overall. Jalen Ramsey was the fourth or fifth pick. I can't, I think he was fifth. 
you know, pick overall. Even when we traded for someone like Dante Fowler, he was the third pick, you know, overall. Brandon Cooks was a top 20 pick. We weren't just trading for players. We were usually accumulating high-level first-round talent mm-hmm. that was available. Even a Leonard Floyd, you know, when you signed him, you know, last year was a top 10 pick, and you're starting to see him show that talent now. You know, so I think you have to look a little bit beyond the surface, and you you have to get comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, but I think, you know, our coaches and scouts have earned that trust, you know, from us organizationally. I think when, and you know me, uh, we couldn't let, we couldn't get through this without talking about team building. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, um, you know, in, in my writing about and sort of like research, very briefly just scratching the surface of everything that you guys are are doing the fascinating part of it is how everything interconnects right in terms of the ecosystem that you've built where yes you're you know we we talk about that draft pick philosophy and and trading for proven assets um and proven players as one piece of that ecosystem and then we talk about um you know comp picks being added into the ecosystem but first you have to identify and develop players who can turn into role players, key role players for you in order to merit those comp picks. So in that way, you are acquiring sort of, and they're not free, but I'm going to call them that for the sake of this discussion, you're acquiring free picks instead of having to trade further assets for them. Um, And so the way that that all interconnects, plus with the coaching strategy and the development strategy of when you draft people in, in the third, fourth, fifth rounds, because you have those proven assets, proven players on your roster, you're now only having to target um, certain traits of players in the later rounds. By only having to target certain traits of players in the later rounds, you are increasing not only your hit rate chance of that player being a good player because of the inefficiencies it cancels in your process, but also of that player then being able to develop at a faster rate and sort of be a cheaper contract longer, but then also contribute for a longer time because they are playing alongside those proven players and therefore not having to be themselves a complete player. Um, That's like a mad science situation to me in terms of how all of that comes together. And there's so many various pitfalls and little variables that can send the whole thing haywire. Um, and how, how do you guys talk about this with each other? And how do you even not only build such an ecosystem, but then understand how to sustain it? Um, and I would say, like, I would say, yeah, certain catalysts have sort of forced the advanced evolution of it. But how do you then sustain it after experiencing some of those catalysts? Well, I think, and I say this, and it sounds like the dumbest thing on earth when you say it. It sounds so <laughs> obvious, but like, the greatest advantage in the NFL is winning because it gives you continuity. Um, it gives you continuity of systems and it allows you to innovate and tinker, you know, with knowledge of your past. Right. And, and so I think when you say that, I mean, we're in a league right now when you hire coaches on average, they last three years, winning percentage of 41%. You know, you change a GM, you change a coach, you change systems and these players get tossed along in the mess. You know, we're now in year five of a partnership of Sean and Les where they can look back on five years of decision making, what's worked, what hasn't, the types of players who have succeeded, those who haven't, and build a philosophy that is repeatable. You know, you can work with Reggie Scott and Tyler Williams and Byron and the sports science team about 
how we keep players healthy and what innovations we do there. You know, then you go to your coaching staff and on offense, you know, we've lost a ton of coaches, but still Sean's offense, you know, at the core on defense, you know, you've always had, you know, this amazing focal point of Aaron Donald to build off of, you know, and then you added Jalen Ramsey. And so while you may change from Brand Wade Phillips to a brand Staley to Raheem, you still have kind of those great players as your focus, but it takes understanding what works for us. And so I, the comp picks are a great thing. Not only do you, once you start that formula, you start drafting a year ahead, right? You start to say, okay, well, we have so-and-so player coming up, you know, John Johnson, we'd love to keep, but the safety market has jumped from 8 million to 11 million to 14 million, you know, probably just not sustainable for us to have, you know, a safety who makes, you know, 10 million plus given the way we're built. So you draft a Taylor Rapp and a Jordan Fuller, you know, even a Terrell Burgess, Terrell Burgess coming in saying, Hey, we may lose Troy Hill. Who's kind of an all purpose defensive back. Terrell Burgess comes in, you know, he's really earmarked for that role. You're starting to think a year ahead, you're drafting a year ahead. And especially when you're in the later rounds, that gives those players, they don't have to contribute right away, right? They get a year to learn. You get a year to see their strengths, you know, and weaknesses. And so, okay, what do we have? You know, you're not in free agency trying to fill holes, you're always, oh, we're really excited about this player coming in. We're really excited about a David Edwards or a Bobby Evans, you know, and a Darius Williams, who we've watched practice and have been in our system and we've trained up. You know, and I think where Les is always so good is like, don't just take the available easy route out of the veteran, right? Put in the time and investment. And that comes down to Sean being unbelievable and choosing coaches, coaches who can come in and mentor and lead, you know, and get players better. You look at what a Thomas Brown's done with the Cam Akers. You know, and now you go from a question mark a year ago to feeling like, hey, you've got a pretty good feature back in, in the NFL, you know, whereas a year ago, what were we going to do a running back? You know, and you, know, you look at our defensive line now and, and certainly the work that's been done. There's a lot of excitement in our building about all these young guys. You know, that's great work by Coach Henderson. You know, when you lose a Michael Brockers, when you lose a Morgan Fox, but you feel like, you know, with Michael Hoy to Jonah Williams and Eric Banks, you know, but by round that you can go replace, you know, maybe not the production, but certainly some of the snaps and then grow, you know, from there. It is all interdependent. Every piece works together. And I think, you know, when you become part of a building and look, we haven't won anything yet. We've, we've been close. Um, we've been successful, but we don't have a banner, you know, ring or a trophy. So it's not to say that our method works, but I think, you know, I, I believe it's one of the things people lose sight of in the NFL, how hard it is to win. You know, the Patriots ruined it for everybody. I mean, you just saw Drew Brees retire after an unbelievable run at the Saints and Champagne with one ring. One Super Bowl appearance, one ring, right? Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, amazing success. And we won't get into that story, right? <laughs> it's a beautiful one, mystery. <laughs> one Super Bowl appearance, one ring, right? Russell Wilson, one ring with the run they've had, two Super Bowl appearances. You know, and you start to, you know, Ben Roethlisberger hasn't been there in a decade. You start to look at these amazing Hall of Fame level quarterbacks. You know, that just doesn't guarantee you success, right? And how hard it is to get, I think people look at the Patriots like, oh, they won, won a Super Bowl nine times, won six rings, and that's the model. That's an outlier. We're all chasing that outlier. But I think, you know, the Chiefs and what they're building now is certainly, you know, very, you know, successful. And maybe they'll prove to be that, that next group in the AFC. Hopefully we can get there from, from the NFC. But I think people have a misnomer of what actually sustained success in the NFL looks like. Right. Sustained success is being competitive, competing for division titles, you know, being in conference championship games. It would be great to have it be multiple ranks. 
I look at, I mean, the Baltimore Ravens are an organization you look at across the board, the way they've been run for years. Great continuity at head coach, unbelievable leadership from Ozzie Newsom and Eric DaCosta, owner, Steven Mashai, Dick Cass. They do everything, you know, you look at them as a really one of the gold standards in the NFL, you know, one Super Bowl. And and they probably do it as well, sustain anybody, but they are there, them, the Steelers, they're there every year. They're in the conversation. I think that's what we talk about is how do you be in the conversation every year? How do you go compete? And that then allows you the chance to go win multiple Super Bowls. And so when you go and invest in your systems, those teams all, you know, the Ravens have a philosophy that people talk about, the Steelers, the Packers, the Seahawks. Those are the franchises. Everyone does it differently. No one follows the same blueprint. Can we do that with our people? Can you keep that core nucleus of Sean and Les and Reggie, you know, together? We've lost a lot of people, which is great. I love when people come looking at us for talent. You know, can you grow that group, you know, along with Tony and say, hey, we're going to keep refining these processes, investing in analytics, investing in sports science, investing in scouting, but not just to do it because throwing money around, to do it in ways we think are going to give us a greater ROI on our players who are our greatest investment. Mm-hmm. That's one other misconception I think people have, by the way, with uh, some of the, your final comments there, is that analytics aren't free. It's not just taking stats that are public and you know, manipulating them in ways that apply to what you do. Like, sure, you guys look at normal stats like the rest of us uh, who are outside of the building. But you guys, that's an investment that you have to make. So that's, again, finding ineff- finding inefficiencies in some facets and then turning them into efficiencies elsewhere. And part of that is staying ahead of what is coming in terms of the big data wave uh, through the NFL and being not just prepared for it, but having systems in place and having invested in certain ways into those things um, to now have an edge in something that's such a razor thin margin of error. Well, look, analytics are like fight club. The first rule is you don't talk <laughs> about them. Right. And I'm trying to get know, any information. I, I know I can you out of you. And, you know, it's Les, great Les was just it. like, stop telling all our secrets. Yeah, <laughs> no, you know, Jake Temme and Ryan Gerlish and, and Sarah and Tyler, I mean, they do an amazing job. Well, I think one of the great parts is you now know what you're looking for, right? When you start to find players who, you know, analytics and cover, okay, how do we dig deeper here? Like you, you, you're tugging at that string and you're finding more and more, which helps you refine your models, which helps you, you know, better understand it. And I mean, you talked about this, you know, when you look at the fourth round this year, like that's when you start to feel like, okay, maybe we're honing in on, you know, how we can find, you know, an advantage. I was look, if you're drafting on traits, then in the fourth round, 18% of the time, you're going to get a starter. That's the base rate in the NFL, right? So you have a one in five chance, basically, of hitting on a starter in the fourth round if you're just drafting without any kind of inside information. How do you try to improve that odds? Well, you start to eliminate things that are noise and really focus on what will work in your system, right? For Sean McVay, for an offense player, they've got to be smart, right? You know that. So you can self-select out anybody who may not meet, you know, some of the ways we analyze, you know, mental acuity, which is not the wonder, right? You know, <laughs> and, you know, and then you continue to refine that model to the point where you feel good about, hey, this works. Now, look, we'll see these guys, what they turn out in the next four to six years. It may be that we're not entirely right in our model and we have to make some tweaks, but, uh, you know, 
we keep investing in the places we think make a difference. Mm-hmm. Players, coaches, systems, you know, injury prevention. And, you know, I, I think the more we can keep feeding you know, that machine, the more we can keep that learning in place, the more curious, one of the things I love, we have one of the most curious groups I've ever met. You know, Sean and Les are avid readers. You know, if you don't find them talking football, Sean's reading a book on culture and leadership, you know, which he always, you know, I laugh about him all the time. He's got a book in his hand trying to get an edge. Les is reading, you know, something about decision-making, behavioral economics. You know, this is a group that is always trying to find lessons from outside of sports to make us better. And, and hopefully that shows. And look, we're not special by any means. We're just a, you know, a group that is committed to trying to find any advantage we can. I'm sure the same way their buildings are. I want to pivot really quick, although I think all of us could sit here and talk about this or at least try to get you to talk about it um, all day. Um, but I know that you have been able to be out at some of the OTAs and some of the minicamp. I think the entire you were there the entire time for minicamp. Um, what do you think of Matthew Stafford so far? And specifically, what do you think about some of the process types of things in the ways that you can very clearly see the building blocks stacking with he and Sean in terms of the collaboration. Um, and I mentioned like on a previous podcast that that first week of, of voluntary OTAs, he's some there, there's a, a very um, organic, like sort of free feel to part of what they were doing because they were allowed to stop the play mid play and talk about it. Now you get, you know, all the way to two weeks later and you're in minicamp and they're going rapid fire seven on sevens and trying to stress the mind. What have you seen from that? process and um and and how has matthew been looking to you and in in your perspective well look sean will tell you right he says it all the time it's about above the neck and that's what the off season's about you know certainly with us and it has been for years let alone you know kind of some of the revolution of this year's off season and so what you're starting with with matthew right like it's always at a pace of teaching everything every practice we do every walkthrough we do is about teaching and getting better above the neck and i think you see you know, Matthew coming in and learning the offense. But what he does is he helps translate it for, for everybody. I remember, you know, the play that sticks out to me for, for Matthew is, you know, they were doing a, a red zone seven-on-seven seven drill, and he threw a little immediate skinny in to J.J. Koski um, to catch the defense sleeping because of the alignment. And right afterwards, he was sitting there kind of working with J.J. He's like, don't even – like, when you see this, don't even run the route. Just – Go, go to the end zone and turn around. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the leverage. And, and I think there's, you know, we, you know, and especially because we have used the offseason mainly for the younger player development. Um, you know, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, they don't need a ton of reps in this offense. <laughs> You're trying to save their legs. I think you see that leadership. You see him and Austin Corbett developing a relationship. What do you see? How do you do it? You see, I, I see Matthew, the teacher, the, the physical talent's obvious. It comes out as soon as you watch him on on the field. I've just been so impressed by his command and his leadership, you know, and willingness to, to really learn and work with the group. And by the way, that's not a comparison, right? That is an evaluation <laughs> of Matthew. Because Jared did the same thing, right? Um, We're not going to get started at this again. <laughs> no, no. It, it, but like, but when you have someone who's been around for 13 years, that's the, you know, that's, they've seen it, they've done it. Um, and, you know, so I think he's sharing that wisdom you know, with everybody. And I think and then my guess is that helps him learn, right. And, and teach, but you know, there's, 
there's a presence, you know, especially because in, you know, OTAs and minicamp, Andrew Whitworth isn't on the field. And Andrew's always kind of been the, the vocal leader. And even with Robert, probably not as much on the field. You know, Matthew really took on that role, uh, which is great to see. And you can see him embracing that, you know, as you know, if you actually think about it, guys, I think about our glue guys, leadership on offense, Tyler Higby, Robert Woods, you know, Andrew Whitworth, they all really didn't practice this offseason because they know what they're doing. And you know, so that could really gave Matthew a chance to, to lead, um, to speak. And then you're going to see Cam Akers, I think, take a, a big role there, you know, as well. But I've been so impressed by Matthew and just his his presence in the organization, um, getting a chance to meet him, Kelly, their kids. But, you know, and he's enjoying every minute of it, right? It's new to him and, you know, it, it's fun. And, and I think he enjoys the partnership with Sean. And I think we're going to see that continue throughout the year. So, so you're saying you're in a better mood this offseason? No, I'm just <laughs> we'll do that. I, I, I think the world is. And, you know, look, I, I was standing with artists when, when Sean said that. And I, I was laughing like, oh, you're going to get some, some grief over that one. But I, I really think you have to take a step back and, you know, you're out of a pandemic. You're able to practice in offs. This is when Sean's at his best. It's when he can connect with his players. And he, Jordan, I mean, you heard him talk about it all out. He hates Zoom. He hates you know, kind of the virtual world and connecting, he, you know, to be on the grass with his players, you know, to have a close confident like Raheem running defense, not that's not a knock on Brandon Staley, right? Like, you know, I, I think this has been, you know, there's a, a comfort level returning back to the world that he had that he just didn't have in 2020, mm-hmm. you know, in 2019, you're coming off the Super Bowl. Everybody's asking questions about the Super Bowl. 2020, you're going through a pandemic, right? This off season, just without the personnel, far is closer to 2018 and 2017 than it ever was to the previous ones. And I, you know, people can, I'm not going to get in the comments what he meant. That's his mindset. And I, I told him that, I told him that every day. So you see, I'm probably the person who's like, you seem happier, but he's with his players. You know, he's back doing what he loves. He's teaching in the off season, you know, some of that weight of 2019 and, the Super Bowl hangover, the weight of missing the playoffs, those have all been lifted. You're back at, you know, really to where we were coming off of 2017. You see a ton of parallels. Went to the playoffs. We had a good year. We didn't get as far as we wanted. You have a bitter taste in your mouth. How do you go, you know, you make a big splashy move like we did in 2018, you know, with some of those trades, you know, like we, you know, we did this offseason. Those parallels, that's not to say we're going to the Super Bowl. I'm not, you know, drawing that metaphor. <laughs> but I think when you Someone go to his – his mood and his mindset. That's what this feels like so much more than the past two off seasons. Yeah. Um, you know, Kevin, we, I think we want to hit a, on a couple more on field uh, yeah, questions but before we, we get to the to... real question. And I know, <laughs> I, I know you know what the real question is. <laughs> my, my, uh, my zoom is timing out rich. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Well, well, we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, Offensive line. Now, it's not. I know you know so much of your success over the last few years is, has been built around you know having that strong offensive line. I don't know whether you know that the move gets uh, the right amount of attention, but but going from Aaron Cromer and, and now bringing in Kevin Carberry, um, a little bit of personnel changes there. Um, what what's that going to look like? H- how do you feel about kind of that transition? Are, are we going to see a, a kind of a big transition with the way that that offensive line plays within that offense? Or uh, what, what kind of things is Kevin bringing, and uh, how do you, how do you feel about the way that those five guys in particular um, have have developed so far? Well, I, there's no way to tell, right? I mean, and I, I say that you know, in the best when you're in shorts, you know, 
and walk through, you can't go, oh, they're, they're going to be awesome, right? Or they're going to be <laughs> terrible. You know, we'll get a sense when we start to scrimmage the Cowboys and the Raiders, you know, and how that holds up. You know, I think philosophically, um, and I know you guys have covered this ad nauseum on, you know, I feel like the 11 personnel podcast should have been the five, you know, this off season. The five. You know, yeah. The off, that's the Austin, the the Austin Corbett, Bobby Evans show featuring yeah. Jordan Rodriguez and Rich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think there was a feel towards the end of last year. It would be great to get bigger. Right. And, you know, we're not just a true, I think last season you saw the blocking scheme from Sean become more multiple. It wasn't right. just zone yeah. blocking, mm-hmm. you know, mixing up power and zone. And, you know, can you go find people who could do both? And, you know, to do that, can you get a little bit bigger on the inside? Um, and, you know, Austin Blythe had played such a huge role, you know, even John Sullivan, but they were smaller guys. Um, and I think naturally as the league gets bigger, you know, more pressures coming up the middle up front, you know, could we get more stout maybe in, in pass protection, but you're going to give up probably some athleticism on the outside in runs and, and those elements. Um, I think there was this thought that, you know, you don't want to lose an Austin Blythe, but you can't invest everywhere. And, you know, how do you, you know, the coaches from, you know, when you sat in, how do we get our best five people on the field? You know, and is that moving Austin Corbett to center? Cause they really, you know, when Bobby Evans had to step in, you know, the playoffs last year you know, played pretty well for the most part. I'm sure there are rookie moments. The rookie was a second year guy who got beat. But I think, you know, the one thing that's always caught Sean's eye with Bobby is when he's played, you know, he's come in and made a difference. Comes in and, you know, shuts out Khalil Mack at right tackle. Goes in and we rush for 200, whatever we rush for in Seattle in that playoff game. You know, and so, you know, from that element, you know, is there a way to get him in? It's just, you know, he's not going to go to right tackle or, or left tackle. We have those. Can you get him in a guard? Can you move Austin? David Edwards had that progression. Uh, I think there was a lot of excitement around, let's go try that. Um, and I know there was a lot made about, well, you know, did you draft someone? Could you sign someone? You know, and I think Wes's point would be, hey, we've drafted a lot of people. I mean, there's a ton of resources invested in this offensive line in-house. Um, and let's see what we have there before, you know, we go do anything else. And, and I think there's been a lot of excitement about Austin. You know, Sean would say it above the neck you know, the communication skills with Matthew. And, you know, I, I think there was some discussion this offseason. Well, you could go one of two ways, right? You have a new quarterback coming in. Do you have continuity with coach, center, all of that? Or is this the perfect time to to start over? Because you can go either way. You could, if it goes well, we made the right decision. If it goes wrong, we made the wrong decision, right? There are two paths, um, you know, and you know, hopefully it turns out to, to work well, but I think you're going to see us try to get bigger overall, um, you know, philosophically. And, and I know even if you follow some of the fans, like I think some of the, they were draft, some of their targets, I think in the draft were probably more previous Rams offensive line targets, maybe than where, you know, less and Sean and Kevin were thinking, how do we move forward? Mm-hmm. Myself included. Cause I think, uh, yeah, I think I could have just used my uh, my day three uh, draft projection piece at the Athletic. I could have just used it if we were a print product as like kindling for something because might as well just have lit it on fire right after publishing it. <laughs> but um, it's interesting. When I was at the Quarterback Collective a couple weeks ago, uh, an offensive coordinator described sort of Sean's shift 
to me is the the wide zone getting a little thinner, not in the sense of the players are thinner because they're obviously bigger, but that but sort of that more a little bit more power concepts uh, sort of implemented and uh, moving in a little bit and getting downhill and, and things like that, um, which has been happening. And especially with the emergence of Cam Akers, I think is is a notable um, personnel addition in, in that regard. But on the other side of the ball, Kevin, um, this is the last one. I know we're keeping you. You're so gracious. Oh, I'm time. good. Yeah. Um, I, blo- I blocked off two hours for you guys. because Oh, knew, that's so nice. Because I, I, I knew neither of you could go short. Yeah. And, and we needed that. We needed enough time for that major pause in the introduction. So, um, and to tell my embarrassing stories, but, um, so Raheem Morris, I mean, the energy he brings is palpable, but I'm wondering what you see sort of from the inside out in terms of what happens if you're privy to meetings, um, interactions that he has with players and, and why he was first and foremost, the guy to come in and, and fill this, uh, this role, um, but also keeping in mind that regression is a mathematical principle in the NFL, um, how those, how he can, and you're seeing him sort of work to counter what will probably be a natural regression that you see year over year when you're the number one unit. Yeah, I look, I, I was fortunate enough to work with Raheem in Tampa, um, for a number of years. And I, and actually I draw on that experience more than I do my time here with him now, just an unbelievable teacher communicate. And one of the greatest energy forces I've ever been around. And truly, you know, even when you get into, you, know, you talk about Sean, in his midlife, I think one of the things if you're around our team, you know, like most teams, we go as our head coach goes and we're fortunate to have a head coach who has boundless enthusiasm, but every now and then, you know, you're going to have, you know, a day when it's just hard. And, you know, I think you see that with our team at times. And that's why I love Raheem, right? Raheem, the days when, you know, hey, Sean may not have that injury, Raheem brings it. Uh, and, you know, you had Wade, who I think was kind of, it, it's interesting, our progression, Wade, who was the elder statesman, who just brought wisdom and, and levity. You had Brandon, who, unbelievable football mind and a, and a professor. And I think in Raheem, you know, just a terrific communicator, energy presence who's so bright, you know, on, you know, on the back end. And I think the one thing when we, you know, I think we all thought pretty early last year in training camp that, hey, Brandon May, you were certainly hoping two and done, but it might be one and done. Mm-hmm. Um, just when you saw the progression and you start to think about it. And, you know, Sean Raheem was kind of his, hey, if, you know, I hope he gets the head coaching job in Atlanta. I hope it all works out. But, you know, that would be a great person to bring in to your point. Like you're not going to replace a Brandon Staley, the next version, you know, from an X's nose right away. Right. You know, but you know, where, where can you maybe find some, some strengths elsewhere that, you know, to help grow your team, knowing there is a regression coming, I'd be shocked if we're the number one defense. That's not to say it's not the goal, but you know, those things don't tend to stack year over year. You might be, you know, top five for scoring more points or giving up more yards. You know, Sean will say we coached differently last year on offense because of the way our defense played, right? We were a mm-hmm. little bit more conservative just because we knew we had a defense. I mean, I think back to the Patriots game, you know, the Bears game, some of those games where we got up early, you know, I don't want to say Sean took his foot off the gas, but he certainly played it because he knew the defense wasn't going to give up 20 points, right? And, you know, so if you get into some of the more of those, you know, 
2017-2018 shootouts that we saw, you know, the defense is going to give up more points. They are going to give up more yards. But what I think Raheem brings is, you know, a a great energy and presence. You know, we still have a pretty young secondary. You know, when you look across the board, mm-hmm. yeah, Taylor and Jordan Fuller have been starters, but they're both really second-year starters. You know, Darius Williams is a second-year starter. Obviously, you have Jalen, who's still young at 26, Terrell Burgess. So you take Raheem's strengths as a secondary coach, right? And then, you know, you have Chris Shula, you have Eric Henderson, you have Thad, you know, who've kind of coached that front seven. You're trying to marry, you know, things Raheem did and, and things Brandon did. And look, you can go back, go turn on the, the Chiefs-Falcons film from late last December when, you know, the Falcons with nothing to play for really shut down Patrick Mahomes and gave him, you know, a game and put together an amazing game plan. Look at what he did, you know, at times to the Buccaneers as well. You know, Raheem's a great mind, a great communicator. I think he just brings an energy and a presence and a, an experience. I think that's one of the things, you know, whether you're talking to Matthew Stafford, Raheem, like they've been there, they've done it. They've been coordinators for a long time. You know, I think they bring some of that confidence and calm, Mm-hmm. you know, in maybe a way that we haven't had before. I think uh, what's one of the most fascinating things to me about Raheem, not just as a coach, but as a person, is that he has been and worked successfully in and operated himself like so many different philosophical systems, but even back to his roots in like the Tampa 2 and all of that, but then how that shifted and changed as the league has. And he has seemed to sort of reinvent himself philosophically while keeping some of those core tenants um, over and over again. And, and I think that in today's league and we can him, him and head coaching opportunities and the, the problems there, that's a whole other episode for other, another time. But in terms of, of what I think the NFL is now and is turning into, it's people who can reinvent himself in those ways, similarly to, what we saw when Sean goes out and hires a Brandon Staley, whose conceptual versions of the defense that he runs was sort of a blueprint of sorts in beating Sean's offense. And he goes out and hires Brandon, not only learns that system conceptually from the ground up, but then they utilize it. And then Raheem, in a way, has been doing that for his entire career, learning, utilizing, and then reinventing. And I think that is such a um, – in the way that we're going to see the teams that are the ones who progress and the ones who sort of stay behind, particularly after this last year and COVID and all of the ways that, that things changed and maybe created that chasm between teams who are ready for the next level of the NFL and teams who aren't. Um, Raheem, to me, from a philosophical standpoint, the way that he has reinvented himself in that sense, but also – brought some like you like you say those core tenants that he had all the way back in Tampa um to me is an underrated and untapped asset when you're running an NFL team well look, the NFL is about evolving we've talked about it every conversation we've had you know even on this podcast about how we've evolved this is not the 2017 Rams 2018 these are the 2021 Rams mm-hmm. and the offense has changed. The defense have changed. Special teams has changed. The draft philosophy, the analytics, the sports, everything changes. And if you have a group, you have to have a group that can evolve with you. And, and look, I hope Raheem is also one and done. That means great things for him. That means great things for us. Um, you know, when the success we will have had in, in 2021, you know, but I, you know, 
I think for him, it's a chance to really go run a defense. You know, well, Sean, I was like, someday Sean will, will attempt to call also, you know, offense, defense, special teams on his own, <laughs> maybe in preseason, but you know, he's going to try. Um, and, and he could, right. And I think that's the, you know, one of the things he can teach every position he can learn it. But I also think he sees the value of what Raheem does, the wrinkles he's bringing to the defense, the teaching, the element, while also, you know, being willing to come in and learn what made us successful, mm -hmm. you know, last year and continue to, you know, to build off that as well. And I'm excited for our defense is headed. And I also think he's a, a great teacher for a Chris Shula and a Jiro Evero, a Jonathan Cooley and Eric Henderson, you know, a Thad Bogardis, you know, as you start to imagine, okay, you know, Marcus Dixon, you know, if Raheem leaves, is there someone in-house, you know, that we can, you know, keep growing because that, that keeps happening to us in a positive way. And, you know, I think it's not just being a teacher of players, it's being a teacher of coaches as well. Kevin, mm -hmm. the last hour here has been fantastic. Thank you. Um, but in a way, I think it's all been a preamble. Should I drum roll? Should we have Kent at this time? This is where we'll put the drum roll in. <laughs> yes, please. Um, right, where, like, can we just get? Can we just get past the football crap? Like, yeah. I, I, look, you're, I've you're tolerated here, this for the last you're not hour. Here to talk about Rich is like, yeah. Rich is like, I'm not, I'm not invested in any e of these e questions. Economic <laughs> development, stadiums, <laughs> philosophy. Rich, like, could you just, you know, this yes. four play is terrible. Can we just yeah, let, let's just get right to it, Kevin. Where? Where is the new uniform? Well, I so I, I think the answer to that question, Rich, and I, I know our fans will, when you, unless you are debuting a completely new primary set of uniforms, NFL rules basically stipulate it's post July 1, right? So oh. first and foremost, that is probably an unknown NFL uniform rule. We have a window. I had no idea. <laughs> so there are multiple teams this year that are all waiting to uh, alternate a classic, a throwback, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you have not seen anybody. The Bengals made their change. They were the only primary change. The other changes this year are all, you know, coming post July one. Uh, that is kind of an NFL philosophy and rule. Uh, that that is part A. This is a three part answer. Uh, part B, given the pandemic. Um, factories, shipping, everything across the world is challenged. And so, you know, if you're trying to make sure that you have product available to sell and for fans to buy when you have Jersey, the later this year, the better, right? Just given some of the global supply chains. And I know global supply chain was probably not a topic we wanted to get into on, on this podcast, but it does play a factor in making sure that someone can go get a Matthew Stafford jersey. That's part two. Part three is when the NFL voted to allow everybody to change numbers, most of the players we would go to market with have all changed their number. <laughs> um, and so you have to go, then you have to get back into the global supply chain and say, okay, all of these Jalen Ramsey 20 jerseys you made are now useless when can I get Jalen Ramsey five jerseys? So I think those, that's your, your macro look at, at the uniforms. Uh, our goal is before training camp. We have um, a window. <laughs> that is our goal. Um, you know, it could slide uh, back if, if some of those issues present. Um, but 
and, and look, those are, you know, I get asked every day on Twitter, you know, when are they coming? I think someone's actually got a countdown on a day to day by day basis. Um, <laughs> Days without is, new uniforms. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I mean, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, it's still a little bit fluid at this point. Um, and, you know, I, I think I went on this podcast a year ago and said things that got misinterpreted as fact. Um, of course, it was, I think it was you and Vinny then. So, mm-hmm. you know, our goal this year has been the less we say about uniforms, unfortunately, the better, because until you can say this is the date, this is what's happening, you know, which we just don't have confidence in yet, you're going to wind up with people, you know, saying, oh, and I promise you after this podcast, the headline is going to be July 1. Not Beautiful. from us. You can count on not from us. Right, we right. Have, right. I'm and sure there will be a lot of headlines pulled from aggregations of so snippets correct. of everything so, uh, you've said here today. New, the new uniforms are coming. Uh, they can be worn up to three times this year. Um, I think there's debate two or three times, but we believe they can be worn up to three times. Uh, and, you know, we expect sometime you know, certainly by the start of the season, the likely training camp, you know, sometime in between July 1 and there, you know, once we have confidence, now that we have a team store at SoFi, we want people to be able to go buy the uniforms as soon as we do it. And, you know, there was some discussion. We did originally look at trying to do it around the open practice um, and couldn't do it uh, mm-hmm. just for, for every we tried every possible way. And it just wasn't possible. And that was the day Jalen officially changed to five anyway. So it probably would have pissed a lot of people off. Yeah. You know, had we done that? So, I mean, we're you know, we're still trying to make sure, okay, nobody else is changing up, but Robert Woods, Jalen Ramsey, Cam Akers, you know, Matthew Stafford, you know, all of these things. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we can get people the jerseys they want with the right numbers on it when they're available. And that's when we can actually go out and say, here's what it is. There you well, go. You you've given me my uh, my project this afternoon before we unveil the podcast tomorrow, uh, which we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So Wednesday is when uh, this podcast you you listeners are hearing this. Uh, but you will have seen a story at theathletic.com because God help us all. I know I I gotta write about this for you guys. May you know God help us. So, <laughs> but for for everybody's sake, let's just hope there's no leaked photo from from some uh, Dick Sporting Goods warehouse or something that's uh, out of context. A, a lids warehouse in Phoenix. Yes. Yeah, I've got no life. Maybe I'll just go stake one out. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, that's yeah. rich. Now you, you got to go do yeah, it. Take a Wi-Fi hotspot and go sit outside. Go sit yeah, outside. Absolutely. Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like the Foo Fighters tickets we both missed out on this Yeah, week. <laughs> yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll be a holiday. We'll just, it'll be uniform day. So, uh, Kevin, thanks so much, uh, you know, for you to take this time. And, uh, you know, a lot of people uh like when they do things like this especially somebody in your position they they like to see the questions in advance and things like that and kevin is always an open book and yeah, uh, we, well, shocked, we really I, shocked him with that uniform yeah. <laughs> i knew the, you know, like you know the you know the, the uniform you know i could have said anything on this podcast and you know the lead would be uniforms coming yeah you know, x y x y and z uh, you but, wrote my headline for me, Kevin Demoff: I, Colon, I, the new uniforms are coming. Yeah, 
Rams. July 1st, 12.01 a.m. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 feel, I feel sorry for you, and, and mostly I feel sorry for the, for the folks who uh, run your Twitter account. Um, cause, uh, it's, it's like every, uh, you, you could literally announce anything. And then the first comment will be like, what's up with the uniforms? <laughs> I, I, it, our fan base has an amazing passion, uh, for it. Um, and you know, look, I, I always view that as a great thing and you, know, you, you want, you want fans to be engaged, excited. You, you always want to please them. And, you know, so there's. You know, that part I, I always take is you want people to to be blasting you on Twitter. When can we find out? When can we see? And look, you also get past a certain point of the outline. There's nothing left to talk about, right? I mean, <laughs> Jordan may be geeking out on, you know, what the rotation looks like, you know, for Morgan Fox's early rundown snaps. <laughs> you know, but, you know, I think the average fan, once you get past the draft, you know, has moved on to, you know, training camp, you know, and I'm so excited we're going back to UC Irvine, I think. You know, that's going to be awesome for fans in preseason and, you know, who we're playing. They're looking at the schedule, but the uniforms were the one kind of last check mark, you know, off. And uh, we'll, we'll get that one hopefully before we go to, to UC Irvine. If it's not, if we can't do it by UC Irvine, I just may not show up because, <laughs> you know, it might be, it might be hard. Well, I know we're all looking forward to, uh, you know, football being back, even though we just finally, you know, all kind of took a collective breath inward after minicamp ended. Um, Kevin, thanks again for for taking the time to join us on the 11 Personnel podcast, including uh, all of our inside jokes that you have picked up on. We really appreciate that. We love when listeners do that and leave us comments and sub, um, subscri- subscriptions and ratings, and uh, we read everything. And so we really, really appreciate everybody for, as always, tuning in, subscribing. Don't forget to su- subscribe to The Athletic through the 11 Personnel podcast. And you get my favorite thing in the world. Rich, what is it? You get a great discount. A fabulous discount, just like my fabulous co-host, Rich Hammond. Um, You guys, thank you so much again. uh, And we will catch you next time.